invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. Perhaps not the most well-known and certainly not the brightest moment of Father Abraham and Sarai, but uh, Genesis 16 verses 1 to 6 is our sermon text this evening. This is God's Word. Let's give our attention to it. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, as wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between, me, between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is God's word. Let's ask for blessing on it. Lord, we pray now that you would work powerfully, Lord, through the means that you have told us to trust in, Lord. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, and it creates what we lack, Lord, your word is effectual, it's effective to give us the fruit of self-control this evening. So would you open our hearts, Lord? Would you uh, bless the meditations of our hearts uh, to see the glory of Christ and to delight in all that he is for us as his bride and be able to be transformed, Lord, through him uh, into his likeness and exercise this fruit of self-control. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe scratching your head as you come to the last, as we come to the last of the fruit of the Spirit, why we're going back into Genesis to be thinking about self-control. I thought perhaps to preach uh, the fall text, Genesis 3, but as we'll see this evening, many resonances, many echoes come up between the way that Sarah is going to persuade her husband uh, to create this child of promise, very similar as we're going to see, and the temptation that Eve will bring to Adam and ultimately persuade him to take uh, of the fruit of the tree and eat that which God had told them not to eat. And in some sense, one of the most basic sins, one of the most earliest sins, was a lack of self-control. There was a very clear delineation of what God had commanded in the garden, and Eve said, no, I don't trust you, I don't believe in your goodness, and I'm going to reach out and take what you have denied me. And I want to ask as we begin this evening, why is it that we can't stop? There's a chip company that tells us that they uh, challenge us to only eat one of their chips. And sure enough, if you start eating them, you sense that it's very difficult to stop when you have started. Uh, my kids watched uh, the Beauty and the Beast movie, and you remember in that story, the thing that keeps the beast externally beastly is that he can't exercise self 
control. This uh, remarkable, beautiful princess falls into his lap in his castle, and all he needs is to learn some table manners, uh, have a, a, a dinner time with her, and treat her in a princely way. And yet, the external beastliness of his appearance is demonstrated uh, uh, internally also in his lack of self-control. You remember he storms around his castle screaming in anger, and when food is set in front of him, he gulps it up uh, like a wild uh, beast that he is. Uh, Why do we lack self-control? I mean, hasn't God told us that the very resurrection of Jesus certifies to us that we will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Why is it that the most uh, basic uh, New Year's resolutions that uh, even non-Christians desire, right? Uh, Exercising more, uh, eating less, spending less time on phones and uh, digital devices, uh, spending more time uh, in things that really matter are so hard for us as Christians even to practice. What keeps us from self-control? Why is it that we find ourselves falling into habits that are so deeply destructive to us, to our family members, uh, to our souls even? Why do we lack self-control? I think oftentimes I read a couple of uh, authors on the Fruit of the Spirit this week, and they kind of laid out this ideal that if you believed the right things about the Bible, the Bible tells you what's right and wrong, how to live within the the confines of what God tells you, and if you exerted your will, if you could will the right things, then you would practice self-control. I think we've all found that we've taken many classes, we've been instructed in many things, we've learned all about diets and practices that would be beneficial for us. And we've attempted to exert our will in different ways and find ourselves again and again falling short of these practices that we know would be beneficial for us. And so we'll see this evening that it's not merely an understanding problem. It's not just knowing the right thing or willing the right thing, exerting our will to do the right thing in practicing self-control but it's believing the goodness of God and orienting our hearts and desires toward Him. It's wanting the best thing that will actually transform us. Our desires are what lead us and what we worship, what we treasure and set our hopes and our confidence in the future is what will actually lead us uh, into self-control. A lack of control, a lack of self-control is a kind of a most basic sin as we see in the Garden of Eden, and it always brings misery. You remember that Eve, as soon as she has taken the fruit of the tree and given it to Adam, they both end up naked and ashamed. A lack of self-control immediately brings them into shame and loneliness, and there's enmity and war between them immediately as well, and there's this very, very destructive nature to a lack of self-control. Uh, one of my favorite um, songs sung by Johnny Cash, not written by him, but sung by him, is called Hurt. And at the very close of his life, after his wife had died, June has died, he sings about his very familiar uh, habits of falling over and over into different destructive patterns. He sings this. This is written by Nine Inch Nails, but he sang it. I hurt myself to sit today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. The needle tears a hole, the old familiar sting. 
try to kill it all away, but I remember everything. And he sings over and over again in the chorus about the sadness of how these different addictions that he had, his lack of self-control, slowly swept away and destroyed the beauty of different relationships that he had. And he, and he wonders, why, why is this? How has this done this to me? What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And he says if, if he could trade everything for uh, a new start, a new beginning, he would do that. If I could start again a million miles away, I would keep myself, I would find a way. Don't we desire genuine self-control and a breaking of destructive addictions? How does God offer this to us and how does he create this ability to keep in check our desires? Well, I want us to see in our text in Genesis 16, first, the glory of God's promises the glory of God's promises, almost too good to be true, the glory of God's promises. Notice in verse 1 it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Uh, this is very significant in the story because as you remember, children was the very center of the promise of what God had said he would do for Abram. Abram, of all the people in the whole world, one man is called in Genesis 12 to go up out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And God says, of him he will make a great nation. A massive people are going to come from Abram. So God says in Genesis 12, too, I'll make a nation out of you. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The thing that people desired in the ancient world was children, which you can pass your future along with, and land. And God promises both of these things to Abraham, a great people and also a great place. And so in Genesis 13, verse 14, he, he's told, Abram is told, lift your eyes up, look from the place that you are northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And the Lord tells him, walk around, walk around the land, pace it off, look at everything that you are going to inherit. It's all yours. It's all yours. It's just a matter of time. An endless number of children. Look up at the stars if you struggle to believe. Try to count them, and that massive number is parallel to the amount of children that I'm going to give you. And the only problem, of course, is year after year passes and God doesn't seem to be acting in line with what he has promised to Abram. And so the doubts start to speak louder than the promises of God. Genesis 15 says this, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. The Lord said, No, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And so he brings him out under the stars and shows them all to him and says, This is how numerous your children are going to be. And it says, Abram believed the Lord and is counted to him as righteousness. And I know you've heard this story uh, before. You've probably been taught the story of uh, Father Abraham many, many times. But Imagine what this was really like. An older man with a wife and no children, year by year, being encouraged to walk around a land 
as he gets more and more crooked and more and more years hang on his shoulders and he's being told, pace off this whole place and it's all going to be filled with your descendants and all of this is going to be yours. See, the, the promise made to Abram and to Sarai doesn't lack a spectacular beauty. The problem that sets in right off the bat is a lack of imagination and an ability to believe that God will actually act in line with the glory of that promise. And so as we find ourselves at the beginning of this story, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. The, the, the seeming tangible demonstration right in front of them that God does not seem to be acting in line with what he's promised is speaking so loudly to Abram and Sarah. And I'll repeat what I said in the outset because I think it's so important. As we're going to see tonight, the way to self-control is not merely being told, this is how God is, these are the things that you should and shouldn't do, exert your will to accomplish them, but you need to be demonstrated and shown that God is actually actively working in your life, that the one who promised that he will be faithful and active will actually come through on his promises, that he is lovely and worthy of following. You remember the promise, the greatest aspect of the promise to Abram is this, I will be a God to you. I will be for you what no other pagan false God can be. And you remember the Levites then, as this picked up in the covenant later with Moses, the Levites are told that they will not have a land of inheritance because the Lord would be their portion. And so second, I want us to see self-indulgence as the fall from glory. Self-indulgence as the fall from glory. Ian Duguid puts it very well in his commentary, Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality. He writes this, In spite of God's promise of numerous offspring, the nursery is still painfully empty. Again, the promise is massive. The, the, the ideal of what has been offered by faith to Abram seems so glorious, and yet what's right in front of them seems to be speaking to them so loudly. And so we're introduced to another character in the story, second half of verse 1. She, that's Sarai, had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Uh, if you're tracking with the story in the book of Genesis, as soon as she is introduced to someone who is from Egypt, you know this is not going to go well. Every reference, reference so far to Egypt has been a place of temptation and a place that seems to offer bounty and immediate satisfaction in the short term. You remember in chapter 13, there's a famine in the land and Abram goes down into Egypt to look for food and provision from God. And when the land is being divided up, the land of promise, the land that's closest to Egypt is the land that Lot goes to. And you remember, he chooses that very seemingly uh, fruitful, beautiful place to take for himself. And it says about that land, it was like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt. And there's only one problem with Lot's choice, right? We've come to find out that that city is called Sodom, 
and he gets bound by that place and is uh, captivated by its delights and even struggles to leave later on. And this woman, uh, Hagar, is introduced to us as an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Sarai is old. The promise seems to be failing. She does not appear on the face of it a fruitful wife to Abram. So she starts to craft a plan by which she will accomplish the promise of God. And notice how she spells out her doubt in God's promises. Verse 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. God made this promise to us. It's his fault that we're childless this far. Let's do something to try to accomplish this promise. God has prevented what he told me he would do. And again, this resonates with us because I think it is the way by which we always fall in our lack of self-control. God has made promises to us, and we think, God, if you're holding out on me, if you're not giving to me what I think I deserve, I will make something happen for myself and self-indulge in this moment. And with three different resonances with the, the, the fall story in Genesis 3, Abram listens, it says, to the voices of his wife, just like, Ab uh, just like Adam did previously. And then Sarai takes her servant, just like Eve took the fruit of the tree, and Sarai gives her servant to Abram. What motivated this fall? What motivated this doubt? Well, we see in the story of the Garden of Eden that the serpent comes craftily to Adam. Servant, uh, the serpent doesn't come directly to Adam and speak to Adam. He comes to Eve. And he undermines the trustworthiness of God in the, the delineated things that God has allowed and not allowed. The serpent undermines that we can actually believe that what God has said is both true and good for us. And he says, you will not surely die, Genesis 3, verse 4. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is breathing this word in the ears and into the heart of Eve. You cannot trust this God who's spoken to you. Why are you still walking and following this God? He's holding out on you. He's not giving you the things that you think will make you wise. He's not provided for you the way that you deserve. And they listen. They both listen to the voice of the serpent and they fall. James uh, tells us the destructive nature of listening to our desires and following our temp the tempting voice that speaks inside of us. James 1 Verses 13 and 15, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it fully, it's fully grown brings forth death. 
Notice what happens in this story of self-indulgence. God has promised this glorious future, children as many as the stars, and a land for them to live in. And they will trade it in a moment for what seems practical and satisfying right in front of them. And what comes, as we see, is what always comes when we give in to our distrust and our doubt of God's goodness and his character, when we give in to our own temptation and self-indulgence. Verse 4, he went into Hagar, she conceived, and immediately she looks on contempt on her mistress. And Sarah starts to blame shift. Verse 5, she said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Doubt in God's character and his goodness turns into a plan to accomplish the promise on their own terms. And immediately with sin, with self-indulgence comes misery. Well, that is the glory of God's promise and then the fall that brings this disastrous consequence. But I want us to see, finally, God's faithfulness to his promise despite the sin of Abram and Sarah. God's faithfulness to his promise despite the sin of Abram and Sarai. It's amazing, isn't it, to read the account of Hebrews 11. I remember preaching through the book of Genesis and often coming back to the account of the patriarchs in Hebrews 11 and thinking, this, does, this is leaving some important details out. Uh, in the book of Genesis, the patriarchs, Abram and Sarah, make some very significant mistakes. They go down into Egypt. They lie about Sarah as a sister instead of a wife. This, this failing demonstrates again the doubting of God's character. But what does the, the author of the book of Hebrews want to capture in Hebrews 11? The glorious faithfulness of God, working faith and trust and obedience in the, these uh, great people testifying to God's faith. The author of Hebrews is not uh, changing the story or uh, misinterpreting, but he's wanting you to see that God has faithfully brought these people who set their hope and their trust on a future city. He brought them faithfully all the way home. God will drive uh, this Egyptian into the wilderness and create a separate line in the rest of chapter 16, but he doesn't immediately start out from scratch, wiping Abram and Sarai out of the story. Instead, he has made his covenant with them. He has made his covenant with them, and he is going to follow through on the promise that he has made. If you remember, Genesis 15 is a remarkable story of how God instituted this promise with Abraham. He takes Abram out in the dark, and he tells him to bring out some animals. And the animals are all cut into pieces, and a flaming fire torch in a pot goes through the center of the pieces. And God says to Abraham, this is how faithful I'm going to be. If either of the parties in this uh, covenanted agreement break this promise, I will be destroyed to be faithful to the promise. If either of the parties 
uh, show a lack of trust, I will pay the penalty. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that the seed of Abraham that he was looking forward to in the future was not many, Galatians 3.16 says, but one. The seed was Christ. And Jesus goes out into a land, a wilderness land, not unlike the wilderness that Abraham has to walk through. And Jesus demonstrates remarkable self-control in the face of temptation. You remember all the things that were promised to Jesus. Glory, freedom from hunger, and an immediate way toward accomplishing God's promise. This is the ultimate self-indulgence. Satan breathes these lies into the ears of Christ and says, just make your way quickly to glory. Step over all the suffering. Step over the cross. Head straight to glory. Cast yourself off the top of the temple. The angels will protect you. Feed yourself immediately on bread. Just take it and eat it. And Jesus demonstrates, not only does he demonstrate self-control, he demonstrates joy in obeying everything that the Father had given him to do. And later in the gospel accounts, very seductively, Peter comes, not unlike Sarah and Eve in the garden, and Peter says, you will never have to go to be crucified. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. He recognizes that very uh, secretive and coming along in a very confusing way. He recognizes the voice of Satan. And for you, for your salvation, he says, I will not avoid the cross. I will not listen to the temptation of even Peter offering me the runaround, the quick way, the self-indulgent way to salvation. Jesus knew that in our faithlessness, in our falling over and over and over again, he would have to bear the dreadful curse. He would have to be split in two. He would have to be pierced on a cross. And this is the way that you will desire him more than the cheap imitations that this life offers you. See, it's the love of God for you in his son that will enable you when you know the right thing to do, when you know what God is calling you to do and you sense a lack of willpower to do it, the love that God has shown to you over and over and over again, confirming his promises, saying, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. You're my child. I will be with you. I will carry you. That love accomplished for you through Jesus will make him more lovely to you, will make him the one that you desire. We're going to sing at the close of this service beautiful words, an interpretation of the section of John where he's speaking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. The words say this, Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Tired and broken, peace unspoken, rest beside these living waters. Christ is calling, find refreshing at the cross of living waters. Lay your life down. 
all the old gone rise up in these living waters. The way that God will give you the power by the Holy Spirit to actually put off self-indulgent desires and put on self-control is for you to know that he is good, that he is worthy of being worshipped and worthy of being desired above all things. And in that comes real transformation. There's a river that flows with mercy and love, bringing joy to the city of God. There our hope is secure. Do not fear anymore. Praise the Lord of living waters. You remember when Jesus was speaking to this very promiscuous woman at the well. She'd had five husbands, and the sixth that she was with was not her husband. And Jesus tells her the truth about herself and then says, come to me, find in me what your soul, what your thirsty, empty soul has been longing for. Put away self-indulgence and find in the Son the source of lasting pleasure and you will find in him the one who's worthy of being worshipped and glorified and the source of truly lasting pleasure. This is the power for us towards self-control. May we cling to that Savior and find in him real change. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we find in ourselves, as Paul said, another principle at work. We know what you desire. We know what you want us to do. But we find this other set of desires at work in us, desires that betray us, doubts that plague us, Lord. And I pray that we would crucify those things, that we would take them to the cross, lay our lives down, and realize, Lord, that every time that we have sought joy and satisfaction, peace and comfort, Lord, outside of you has always betrayed us, Lord. It's always let us down. Lord, I pray that we would come this evening even for a new time, Lord, or for the many, many thousands of times or to the wells of living water. You were walking alongside Abraham and Sarai all along, Lord, even when they stumbled in this way. And you offered yourself to them as the source, Lord, of their inheritance, the joy, uh, very great presence in that land that they were looking forward to. Lord, would you show us your glory? Would you show us your beauty, your worthiness, and help us to set aside, Lord, these other addictions and destructive habits because of who you are and what you've done for us through your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Asked uh, for um, uh, a couple helpers for singing this song as we close. Let's stand and uh, they will lead us uh, in this song, uh, Living Water. So let's stand together as we sing this song together.
hear him bless you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen.